Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the Center in person and online. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Last week, we hosted a discussion of a major issue at the forefront of national police reform, whether qualified immunity for police officers should be abolished. Qualified immunity is a defense that police officers can raise in response to lawsuits seeking monetary damages for alleged civil rights violations. Unless the plaintiff can show that an officer violated a clearly established right, meaning a court already declared similar behavior in a previous case to be unconstitutional, the officer can't be held liable. Our panel unpacked the qualified immunity doctrine and whether it needs reform. National Constitution Center President and CEO Jeffrey Rosen was joined by Gloria Brown Marshall, Professor of Constitutional Law at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, Leonard Keston, an attorney who has litigated hundreds of cases involving the application of qualified immunity, and Raphael Manuel, Senior Fellow and Head of Research for the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute. This panel was a partnership with WHYY's Your Democracy Initiative, supported by the Sutherland family. It was streamed live on October 7th, 2021. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of this wonderful institution, I'm thrilled to share that today's program is presented in partnership with WHYY's Your Democracy Initiative, which is supported by the Sutherland family. And I'm very grateful to Bill Morazzo, Sandra Clark, and Emily Kinslow for their great collaboration in putting this panel together. It's an honor to have you, uh, Gloria Brown Marshall, Leonard Keston, and Raphael Manguel. And I want to begin this important topic with a very basic question for for round one. What is qualified immunity? As I understand it from the Constitution Center's crack prep team, it's a common law doctrine that was first recognized in a 1967 case called Pearson versus Ray. Uh, The modern test for qualified immunity comes from a Supreme Court case called Harlow versus Fitzgerald in 1982 which says that uh, you can argue for qualified immunity only by showing that the defendant's conduct violated clearly established constitutional or statutory rights of which a reasonable person would have known and that that test was further qualified in subsequent Supreme Court cases. Uh, Gloria Brown Marshall, uh, do I have that right? And, And Please tell us what is qualified immunity. Well, you've you've hit the the four corners of it. It is a court created doctrine that um, protects police officers as well as other government employees. And the sense of it was in the beginning, the 1960s, as you pointed out, was for good faith, and it was assumed that these government employees were acting in good faith. And so, therefore, as we moved into 1982, they needed to be shielded from frivolous lawsuits and that it would be difficult for government employees to do their jobs if they were always worried about being sued personally. And so there's a standard when it comes to police officers for qualified immunity that if there is a a suit that's brought um, based on some action that took place. So in qualified immunity, we're dealing with civil cases, not not criminal cases. And so in civil cases, if this um, person, a civilian, wants to bring a lawsuit against a government employee like a police officer, first there has to be a 
some, some proof, for example, for successive force as being alleged that this person, the police officer, a government employee, violated the Fourth Amendment. But the second part that's been the trouble, that's the controversy that has brought us here today, I'm sure, is that the clearly established um, second question of whether or not the police officer in that particular case had been given notice, knew beforehand that what that officer was doing at the time was indeed a violation of constitutional rights. Thank you. That's very helpful to distinguish the two parts of that two-part test. And to say if that's second apart, um, would a reasonable person have known about it? Was it clearly established? That, that um, is an object of controversy. Uh, Larry Kesson, more about the history of qualified immunity. Common law courts had recognized it in the 19th century. Um, some of this is arising under a federal statute called the Ku Klux Klan Act, which was passed in 1871 after the Civil War which has a section known as 1983, which allows citizens to sue state and local government officials. And the Supreme Court uh, clarified this doctrine in trying to figure out how broadly that statute swept. But tell us about the history and then tell us about this two-part test that, that Gloria mentioned. Well, his, his, the thing about qualified immunity, historic, historically, the, the sovereign was immune. You start with that. You can't sue the government. And then we evolved through statute and through common law that you can't. And at the time qualified immunity was created, they were actually expanding uh, the right to sue, uh, not limiting. As it's grown up in the last 30 years, uh, as it has developed, it, to us, it's an issue of fairness. Here's the problem. If you let every allegation go to trial, you, you should not have different results. So you have uh, uh, an incident happens, goes to a jury, that jury says excessive force was used. The identical incident happens, the other jury says, no, it wasn't. It's not. It's an issue of fairness for the police officers. The the actual cases that tell them how to how much force to use do not give true guidelines. So what this says is what the doctrine basically says is if a a, a reasonable police officer uh, would know that what that that the courts have told him her not to do this, that's unconstitutional. And if she has been told, then it's not fair to hold that particular officer liable. That's what it is. Thank you uh, very much for that uh, clarification. Raphael, you've argued that it's really the second prong of this two-part test that should be re-examined, but I want to make sure I understand the evolution of it. Um, in 2001, the Supreme Court heard a case called Saucier versus Katz, which said that courts should first decide whether qualified immunity was asserted and then is obligated to determine whether the law was clearly established only if it had found a constitutional violation. So in other words, first you have to decide, is there a constitutional violation? And only then do you decide whether the law was clearly established. Um, is that right? How important was that qualification? And, and, and why do you think that this second part of the test might be reasonable? Yeah, I mean, so, so the Saucier case was uh, subsequently overturned in a case called Pearson versus Callahan. And that's where, you know, I think the rubber really hits the road uh, on this debate, because as you pointed out, Saucier required courts to engage in both steps of the analysis, which is to say that they had to decide first whether or not there was an actual constitutional violation. And then they could go on to the second prong of the test, which was, you know, was that constitutional right that was being asserted here clearly established at the time such that the police officers could reasonably be found to have been on notice, right? Essentially, qualified immunity, I think, is best thought of as a protection against ex post facto liability, which is something our country has, you know, a, a very long and rich tradition of. Um, 
It's in the Fifth Amendment with respect to the criminal law. You know, you cannot be held criminally liable for the violation of a statute that had not been passed at the time that you engaged in that conduct. This is kind of the civil law uh, 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 counterpart to that. What Pearson versus Callahan did, though, was because of an argument in favor of judicial economy, uh, it allowed courts, lower courts, to skip the first prong of the analysis and go straight to the question of whether or not the right was clearly established. Because if it wasn't, then it didn't matter whether uh, the Constitution was actually violated, because even if it had been, there was no notice, and so the police could not be held liable. Um I've, uh, as you pointed out, have, have taken some issue with this, and you know, I'm sure we'll get to uh, the, the heart of, of the question uh, for this debate, which is whether or not qualified immunity should be abolished. But I think that if, if there is a middle ground reform, it's going to be um, with respect to this particular development in the law. Um, what, what Callahan did was it allowed ambiguities to exist for much longer than they otherwise would have under the Saucier Doctrine. Um, and, and that's where um, I think a lot of issues have, have arisen. I, I hope we get a chance to talk about that. Thank you. That's so uh, helpful and clarifying. And as you just said, uh, before uh, Callahan or Pearson versus Callahan, this 2009 case, courts have to decide if an official has violated a constitutional right, even when the official is already protected by qualified immunity. After Pearson, as you just told us, courts have the discretion to avoid that constitutional determination when the official has qualified immunity. Uh, so that will be a crucial part of our debate. All right, well, let's get to the core of the debate, which is why everyone's here. Should qualified immunity be abolished? Uh, Gloria Brown Marshall, uh, you have argued that qualified immunity allows officers to escape uh, properly placed personal accountability for their actions. This encourages them to act with impunity. And you've written that uh, this encourages officers to adopt an act now and ask questions later attitude when it comes to the use of force. Tell us more about why you believe that qualified immunity should be abolished. Well, I, I don't believe it should be completely abolished. I think it should be changed. And the reason why is I began by saying qualified immunity is what protects government officials as well as police officers, because they are government officials, from frivolous lawsuits. So when we're talking about abolishing qualified immunity, is it just for police officers or will it be for teachers? Will it be for social workers? I work for the city of New York and the state of New York. Will it be for professors? So when we start thinking about the um, susceptibility to frivolous lawsuits or any lawsuits um, and the cost that would be incurred in trying to defend those lawsuits, I want to think about what qualified immunity means when it comes to law enforcement. And the reason why we have a, a major concern today is, is not just George Floyd, even though that was a flashpoint, um, the murder of George Floyd by um, Derek Chauvin. It was the idea that we never get into court, whether or not it's criminal um, 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 litigation that needs to take place with prosecutors or civil litigation. How can we get to the point where we can reasonably say this officer should have been aware, even though it seems like based on the standards of decency, officers should be aware of these things. How can we say under law that an officer has been given reasonable notice when the officer is not brought to court to actually explain why the officer did what he or she did in that particular time? Because qualified immunity prevents the action
protection from going forward in civil cases. And then on the other side of this, we have, and it's not just me, but many people are looking at this sense of even when judgments are paid out, and in, in, in New York, for example, $200 million roundabout is paid out per year in these civil judgments, the officer is not paying a price you know, personally. Now, so the officer has not explained why this behavior was necessary, why this force was used, and the officer is not paying out of pocket one way or the other. And so um, what's the, the disconnect is that's taking place is that the officer is not seen as having to actually change the behavior. And in not changing behavior, it seems to support that the officer is shielded, as Justice Sotomayor said, that the courts have, have given officers almost an absolute shield um, to, um, to protect their behavior. And so um, accountability, the perception by the community, and the cost of, of what we're seeing in the use of qualified immunity as it stands today is one of the reasons why I think it should be greatly amended. Thank you very much for that. Um opening intervention. Uh, Leonard Kasten, you've argued that uh, qualified immunity should not be altered at this time. You testified at the Boston uh, Police Patrolmen's Association on proposed changes to the Massachusetts Civil Rights Act and said that the un under the changes, uh, this would create a vehicle for litigants to bring claims in state courts, uh, resulting in a flood of state court litigation, and also that qualified immunity Let's the police know what the law is, which is crucial for them to do their jobs. Tell us more about why you think that qualified immunity should not be abolished. Well, first, I don't uh, support no abolishment. There's a change that I would like to see, that we all would like to see, which is the, the Supreme Court wants they abolish the first step. What, what the first step, which is having the court decide whether this particular conduct is constitutional or not. Now the courts don't have to do it and just say we're not going to decide it. The, the everybody, everybody, all citizens or anybody in this country um, should know what the rules are. And that is the, the issue about when you pass a law, if the law is vague, the law will be stricken because the, you don't know that you're breaking it. Likewise, the qualified immunity doctrine means that the police, a reasonable police officer should have been aware that this is illegal. The ex post facto uh, uh, analogy, which I completely agree with, is what this says is we're going to change something. If we're going to create a new wrong, you can, we're not going to hold that officer liable. So the change I would like to see is to, is to change the Supreme Court rules, however we change it, that in every case where qualified immunity is decided, the court has to speak to the constitutional or unconstitutionality of the alleged action. They can't just skip it. And that will give everybody a guideline. As to accountability, uh, that uh, Ms. Brown Marshall said, here, here's the problem. The people pushing for change in the qualified immunity, the last thing they want is that the officers won't be indemnified. They do not want to get judgments against the individual officers and not be able to collect them. So the notion that this will change accountability because the officers are sued individually, in, uh, in certain, I practice Massachusetts. Virtually all officers are indemnified, either by insurance companies or by the cities and towns. So if they're sued individually and lose, somebody else is still going to pay. That, and, and that's what the plaintiff's bar wants. The last thing that the folks who are arguing to abolish qualified immunity want is to say no qualified immunity and no indemnification because they want to collect the money. So the, 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 the concept that this will change the world is not really true. Qualified immunity applies to a tiny percentage of police cases. 
There, there is no bar to litigation. We have tons of litigation, many times appropriate, most of the times not. You know, there are times when they, somebody did something wrong. But uh, it, it does not apply. It does not bar anybody from, from bringing a lawsuit, and it does, it's, it's not an impediment to lawsuits. We have the lawsuits. People have the right. And the strength of our country, as I tell every jury, is that, you know, I may represent the city of Boston being sued by a pro se a person without a home. Everybody is an equal shot. And I always say, just remember the police officers. They just want to know what the rules are. And that's what qualified immunity does. Rafael, as, as you said, you have a nuanced uh, position about uh, qualified immunity. Uh, one of the arguments you've made is that the idea that qualified immunity allows law enforcement to violate rights with impunity is undermined by lots of high value judgments and settlements with police departments that have played out recently, and you've cited uh, a whole series of those settlements, which suggest to you that police escape liability because of qualified immunity less than expected uh, in just 3.9% of cases. Tell us more about that study and why you think that qualified immunity is not the central reform that needs to be adopted, although you do support some refinements of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think there's some mechanic mechanical problems with the, the case often made against qualified immunity on public policy grounds, which is to say that, you know, the idea that qualified immunity is actually feeding a, a sense of immunity uh, within police officers that, you know, uh, they take with them into the field and misbehave as a result of that, of a lack of, of, of personal accountability, personal financial accountability, I think is wrong. And as you pointed out, one of the reasons I think it's wrong is because there just isn't a ton of empirical data supporting um, that theory of the case. Um, the, the the study that you alluded to is a, a study done by Joanna Schwartz, uh, which was published. Uh, she's a UCLA law professor, very brilliant, one of the foremost uh, leading scholars on qualified immunity. She published a study in the Yale Law Journal in 2007. 17, analyzing almost 1,200 cases filed against state and local law enforcement officers under Section 1983 of Title 42, which is where qualified immunity comes into play. And what she found was that qualified immunity could have been raised uh, as a defense in 82.8% of the cases. However, just 3.9% of those cases in which it could be raised as a defense, um, was there a dismissal or grant of summary judgment in whole or in part on qualified immunity grounds, which, you know, I think undermines the claim that qualified immunity functions as an effective bar to recovery, some significant, uh, uh, amount of the time. Also in New York City, there's a, a, an interesting database that was compiled and launched by the Legal Aid Society uh, a couple of years ago. And it looks at federal lawsuits filed against the NYPD in both the Eastern and Southern Districts of New York between January 15 and 2018, um, in June of 2018. And, and that database contains almost 2,400 lawsuits. And if you filter those entries uh, by case disposition, by outcome, there are just 74 of those nearly 2,400 that were resolved in favor of police so even if all 74 of those cases were actually decided on qualified immunity grounds, that would mean that the doctrine only proved to be an effective bar to recovery uh, in just 3.1% of those cases. Now, it is possible that you could turn around and say that qualified immunity is preventing 
some unknown number of cases from being filed. Um, there's just really not a lot of empirical evidence to support the idea that there would be some additional flood uh, of litigation um, following the abolition of that doctrine. And I would point out that there was an interesting law review article published in the Harvard Law Review in 1969, and it looked at uh, cases filed under Section 1983 of Title 42 and found only 19 cases in the first 65 years um, of that statute's history. And it wasn't really until Monroe versus Pape was decided in 1961 that you started to see a big flood uh, of, of litigation filed against police officers. Now, you know, as you said, um, while I don't uh, support the complete abolishment of the doctrine, I do think that there's an opportunity for a middle ground reform. And it's very much along the lines of what Leonard just suggested, which is that, you know, you can legislatively overrule Callahan and reinstate the test uh, in Saucier, which is to say that you can legislatively require courts to engage in both steps of the analysis. And what that will do is it will more quickly shrink the scope of rights that are not, quote, clearly established so that you have fewer and fewer instances over time in which police officers can, you know, essentially claim ignorance. And I, I do think there's some evidence um, to support the complaint that the second prong of, of the qualified immunity analysis um, has has been abused, which is to say that courts have engaged in kind of these weird idiosyncratic uh, instances of line drawing that, you know, uh, seem uh, um, uh, not not so good in, in terms of accountability. But the, again, I, I think that the idea that police officers um, are walking around with a sense of immunity because of QI, because of qualified immunity is wrong, both because it's not often used as an effective bar to recovery, but also as Leonard pointed out, 99.98% of all the dollars recovered against police officers, um, that is when they're successfully sued, uh, those those dollars are paid uh, pursuant to indemnification clauses. Um, those 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 monies are paid by the government. So even if you got rid of qualified immunity today, there is nothing suggesting that anything would happen to the practice of indemnification. Which means that police officers still are not going to be the ones paying out of their own pocket. Um, uh, which, you know, is, is not really where the money is. I think most plaintiff's lawyers know that. The, the other thing I want to point out here, too, is one last point, which is that uh, I think one of the reasons we're having this debate is because over the last several decades, there's been a move to constitutionalize civil torts, um, which is to say that a lot of, of, of alleged police misconduct has a, a, a civil tort counterpart. Um, however, a lot of those cases are steered by plaintiff lawyers to uh, Section 1983 of Title 42. And I think the reason for that is, is because under that statute, you can get treble damages um, and you can recover attorney's fees, which is to say that you can stand to recover more money um, if you succeed in a 1983 case versus, you know, a, a, a civil assault and battery case or conversion case, um, whatever the case may be. Thank you very much for that. And thanks to all three of you for such uh, thoughtful uh, interventions. Uh, I want to ask now whether there's any chance that the U.S. Supreme Court might choose to reconsider this Callahan test on its own. Um, Justice Thomas uh, in 2020 uh, argued for limiting qualified immunity, and the case was called Baxter, and he offered two critiques. First, he said that both of the tests for qualified immunity, both the now outdated uh, good faith immunity standard and the current 
standard, which we've been discussing, should a reasonable person, a reasonable officer have known that there was a clear constitutional violation? He said that lacks a foundation in the common law. And Thomas argues we should return to the approach of whether ask, asking whether immunity was historically accorded to the relevant official in an analogous situation of common law. And second, Thomas said the court had improperly expanded qualified immunity to a hospital superintendent, university president, state executive officers, National Guard members, and he it appears would limit the scope of qualified immunity um, using history as an approach. Gloria Brown Marshall, would, would Thomas's approach address this reform that uh, several of you have been embracing of requiring courts to decide whether there was a constitutional violation first before deciding whether a reasonable officer should have known about that? Or is he simply talking about narrowing the scope of officers to which qualified immunity would apply. I, I think that that's part of the problem that, that Raphael and, and, and Lenny have uh, raised, Lenny, if, you may, if I may, um, have raised, and that is the Supreme Court, um, because most of them are, are not um, um, in the background criminal um, attorneys or have practiced law, come up with philosophies and theories that may or may not be what's necessary to um, fix the problem. So in theory, it sounds great. But in, in practice, we'll see. It, it was Justice Sotomayor who actually practiced law and has said re repeatedly that it's necessary for us to actually um, have a sense of how this is going to be put into practice. And so I could see um, uh, uh, Justice Thomas's theory being put into practice, but also being refined as the practice takes place. I want to, if I could very quickly, go to something that Raphael addressed. And that is, if I could um, use one of my own books, and I'm, and I'm reading Race Law in American Society, and I'm going back to a January 23rd, 1943 incident. The reason why there have not been more cases brought um, um, using the um, civil rights statute is because the case of Screws versus United States, in which um, people African descent were, um, have, have been over much of this nation's history abused by police officers um, with impunity. And that is why the, the um, 1871 statute was um, enacted in the first place was because it was um, the federal um, officers or federal um, in Congress, they knew that the federal laws would be um, protective of these um, newly freed Africans and the state courts would not, and that state prosecutors would not bring the criminal actions. And so it is in the case of Screws versus United States um, that we see a black man who is brutally beaten and dies from his injuries by police officers. And then this case that's brought later um, goes to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court then uh, wrangles with the, the 1983 um, version of the Civil Rights Act under the 1871 um, federal statute to say that it's still not protective of a black person's rights. And so that's that, that sense is after this has happened, waiting for the federal government itself, the Justice Department or others to bring these actions has meant that instead of using 1983 until we can get later until the civil rights movement, you start thinking about the 1960s, you start thinking about more black people who are going to law school, learning about civil rights laws, and, and the um, uh, approach now to protecting of rights has expanded. But that 60-year period, there's there's a reason why there's there's this such a, a, um, a small number of cases being brought. Um, the other part of this I want to raise is we keep talking about money. 
money and whether or not the um, plaintiff's counsels are going to be paid and, and how much the damage award is going to be. Um, but we all know as attorneys that people want their day in court. And this becomes a primary issue. So, and this is something from an empirical standpoint that really hasn't been the focus of, of determinations by studies. People generally want their day in court. And the fact that they are denied that because of qualified immunity makes it um, appear as though, and that's why I said the appearance is that, that law enforcement is acting with impunity. Because when you think about the sense of, of what is reasonable notice, so you could have someone at four o'clock in the morning who approaches a police officer um, staggering from side to side. The police officer believes this person is drunk. There is um, an encounter between the two. It's found out later after the police officer uses um, um, was considered to be excessive force that's being alleged that the, that the civilian um, was diabetic. Okay, so now the question is, well, would a police officer know that a civilian was diabetic at four o'clock in the morning, <clears throat> excuse me, in the dark? And then they say, well, he wasn't given reasonable notice because the only other case involved a person. It was two o'clock in the morning and the person was mentally ill and the police officer used reasonable force, was considered to have used reasonable force because they weren't on notice that, you know, that, that the difference in facts can be so minute that that means that the notice um, um, standard has not been met. And this happens time and time again. The appearance then to the community is that police officers are getting away with murder based on one slight change in the fact to say that they didn't know under those fact situations that this would be a violation of constitutional rights. Uh, Leonard Kesson, first I'll ask you the, the Justice Thomas question. Would, would his proposed uh, return to an originalist understanding of qualified immunity at common law simply narrow the scope of officials to which qualified immunity applied, or would it also address your concern about having the court rule first about whether there was a constitutional violation before deciding whether the right was clearly established? And then maybe a response to, to uh, Gloria Brown Marshall's uh, points that the accountability requires uh, looser standards for qualified immunity. Uh, as to Justice Thomas, I mean, if, if, if the Supreme Court does the change that uh, I suggest, uh, Raphael and I suggest, they can do that. I don't think there should be a huge sweeping change because then you have a whole new uh, time of jurisprudence, which, which then tells the officers, tells the citizens, tells the residents of America what the rules are, new rules. Um, I don't, the, the qualified immunity does not bar the courtroom to people in almost every civil rights case, almost every case. The, the question, if there's a fact question that's determinative, that is, uh, I'll give you one that we, we had, which, which ended up in the, in the First Circuit uh, on qualified immunity. Uh, officer says that the, gar the uh, automobile containing the, the uh, driver and the plaintiff passenger was pointed at him, drove at him, and he fired and killed the driver. The passenger said the car was not driving at him and was... Uh, perpendicular to him, was not moving. He just went up and shot the driver. I, we had uh, tire marks, lots of evidence that that, her, that version was simply not true. But the First Circuit said, nope, uh, that's a fact question. A jury, they're going to have to determine who's telling the truth. And so the jury determined that, the, in fact, the, the driver was driving at the officer, and the judge then, he said qualified immunity. I was, frankly, upset. Because I think the uh, I thought the officer just did what he did was legal, but the judge didn't want to, so he said, "I'm not going to decide what's legal or not." It's qualified immunity, so he won. 
But almost all cases, it's a fact question. Uh, somebody says the officer went up to me and punched me in the mouth for no reason, clear constitutional violation. And the officer says, no, I didn't. This all this happened. That goes to a jury. The only time qualified immunity happens is if the facts, you have to accept the facts in the best light to the plaintiff. The person suing, you look at those facts and say, in their best light, do they have, have they alleged a constitutional violation? That's what you look at. And look, whether there's qualified immunity or not, it's something called summary judgment. You look, you, that's what the courts look at. Those are the cases that don't go to a jury. But if somebody, if an officer clearly violates, you say the officer clearly violates your civil rights, then that officer is going to a jury to decide what the truth is. Raphael, just, just before leaving this point, I, I, I want to make sure I understand it. My, as I read Justice Thomas's um, dissent from denial of certiorari, he would not address the proposal that you and Leonard are proposing. Um, so my question to you is, do you see any prospect on the current Supreme Court that a majority of justices might embrace the reform that you both recommend and require courts to rule squarely on the constitutional violation before reaching the question of whether the reasonable officer should have known about it. And then uh, tell us about the um, proposed legislative solutions that are on the table, ranging from the federal proposals, which would uh, eliminate qualified immunity as a defense for law enforcement, that's the Justice and Policing Act or the Ending Qualified Immunity Act, to the Reducing Qualified Immunity Act. You can see there's a range of proposals, and then 25 states have considered some form of qualified immunity legislation since Floyd, George Floyd's death. Do any of those proposals address the reform that um, you have endorsed or not? So, uh, so to the first question, I mean, I'm, I'm not certainly not an experienced court watcher um, and, and uh, don't have a crystal ball here, but I, I think it would be highly unlikely for the court to overrule itself on this point yet again after doing exactly that in Callahan uh, so soon after Saucier. So um, I, I, that would be a, a particularly unusual development. It's not something that I would encourage people to rely on. And also, you know, uh, for what it's worth, I think that these kinds of what are essentially public policy changes ought to be done in the legislature anyway. And so I do think um, that resorting to a, a, a legislative uh, a reform approach is probably the best way to go here. I mean, with respect to the proposals that are already on the table, um, you know, none of them really hit this question square. I do think it's really interesting that a lot of state uh, and, and states and cities around the country have uh, taken it upon themselves to build out workarounds. Um, for qualified immunity that that would allow um, you know plaintiffs to to sue for civil rights violations without having to you know get over the hurdle um, that qualified immunity might present. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. Colorado was one of the first uh, statewide jurisdictions to do that. We don't have any data on on what police litigation looks like in the wake of that change, um, but I have not seen any indication that it just somehow um, exploded. And I think the reason for that is again because it's not it's not qualified immunity that is denying people their day in court. Um, the data just don't support this argument. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the, the development of more stringent pleading standards over the last hundred years probably do more to keep plaintiffs out of court um, than qualified immunity does in, in, in these kinds of cases. I'm thinking here of you know, cases like Twombly and Iqbal. Um, so so I, I don't think any of these proposals uh, actually get at you know what Leonard and I uh, uh, have have kind of been pushing for here. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I do think that what needs to happen is a just legislative overruling of Callahan and reinstatement of the test and saucy, which is not, you know, unheard of, right? That's a, the 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 Congress has in in past instances essentially overruled um, Supreme Court cases through legislation. Employment Division versus Smith comes to mind, um, which led to the, the Religious Freedom um, and Restoration Act. Uh, so, so Congress has the authority to act here. I think if it does that, it will send a clear signal, um, you know, that, that qualified immunity is something that will die on the vine eventually, um, as it is starved of, of the kinds of instances in, in, in which, you know, uh, the kind of ridiculous line drawing that we see in the second part of the analysis um, is going to be much less likely to happen and, and much harder to justify as the scope of rights that haven't been clearly established uh, shrinks over time. And that's where I really think the focus needs to be. I, you know, one of the reasons that I brought up that, that 1969 Law Review article you know, was not to, to suggest that uh, you know, 1983 doesn't actually provide the relief that that people say it does, but you know, only to uh, help contextualize uh, the fact that we didn't really see a lot of litigation around this idea of of qualified immunity until you know the the late 60s, and then of course in in the 80s with Harlow. Um, but I do think it, it's important. Um, you know, to have something in place that police officers can avail themselves of, and not just police officers, but all state actors can avail themselves of when there is a true shift in the law that was not really foreseeable. One of the cases that comes to mind here is Miranda. Um, I don't think any police officer in, you know, 1962 would, you know, would have thought that, you know, the Constitution's Fifth Amendment required them to uh, lay out this particular incantation of, of rights to, uh, to people that they were arresting. Um, it wasn't until that case came down um, that you would violate the Constitution as a police officer for failing um, to, to read someone his or her Miranda rights. And you know, to, so to hold a police officer liable for failing to do that prior to that decision coming down, I think would have been a little um, uh, hard to swallow. And I, I do think Leonard makes a good point here, which is that you know, um, if, in fact, what you want to do is get rid of qualified immunity in order to increase um, uh, the likelihood that a police officer will have to pay out of pocket in order to ensure accountability. You'd also have to get at the indemnification thing. But even if you got at both of those things and you got rid of widespread indemnification practices, you got rid of qualified immunity, I think what we'd see there is a real problem in the sense that, you know, I think it would be very, very hard for, for individuals to justify pursuing a career in law enforcement at that point. And, you know, at, at a point in our country where we're seeing crime move in the wrong direction, I don't think uh, that that's a very good thing. Uh, Gloria Brown Marshall, I'd love your thoughts on the legislative proposals that are on the table, both state and federal. First, whether you agree with Raphael that Congress should require the court first to consider whether there was a constitutional violation and, and overturn Callahan. And then uh, do you support any of the federal uh, proposals from the Ending Qualified Immunity Act to the Reforming Qualified Immunity Act? And then picking up on the state responses, Wesley Skogan asks, you know, how is qualified immunity being legislated by the states? Uh, Colorado, in the wake of George Floyd's uh, uh, death, now allows uh, officers to be sued under a new civil action for deprivation of rights. New Mexico has eliminated qualified immunity as a legal defense to state claims. Are there any of that, those state uh, models that you find appealing? 
Well, I think, as I said before, a lot of this, when you go from theory to practice, we'll see how it actually goes forward. And and I don't completely disagree with, with, with Leonard or Raphael about changing the, the, the standard and how qualified immunity would be used. The sense of it is that, that the civil courts and the Civil Rights Act is the secondary source of accountability that most people are forced into because the criminal justice system has failed many people when it comes to excessive force cases um, in, in, um, in, in civilian um, uh, deaths but at, the, at the hands of law enforcement. And so I think that there is um, within, for example, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, um, the, the focus on uh, qualified immunity, but what it lacks is the, the need for um, criminal um, litigation, um, that officers need to be brought to court and have to, through a criminal case, um, explain why they behaved, how, why they thought their life uh, was um, in danger, why force was needed at that particular time, and why that level of force. And because there's not a, a, a criminal consequence for many people, they're trying to squeeze into civil court um, that the sense that justice has to take place. Their loved one has been injured. Or are killed, and they do not believe that police officers are being held accountable for it. And we're not, that's the elephant in the room. That's not um, taking place, the accountability in criminal court. And so, the sense that they're going and having these civil judgments that come, come out of the jurisdiction's um, tax base um, becomes this, this issue of debate that we're having right now. I think the fact that we have 18,000 police jurisdictions, national legislation is going to have to be the, the type of of answer to the problem when it comes to qualified immunity as well as um, prosecutorial discretion. Um, this, this sense that people have to have some sense that law enforcement is not acting with impunity and that there is some idea that um, police officers can be held accountable. At this point, that, that sense of accountability is that is strained at the at the very least, um, and at and at most we hear defund the police. Um, uh, I don't think the police officers should all be defunded. And yes, even when crime was was decreasing, the the budgets for police departments continue to rise. And yes, there's been an uh, an uptick during the pandemic in crime. But then this this sense the trigger is from 1871 was the racial disparity in criminal justice and the racial disparity in policing. And, and I'm going to raise this one last point that we have not talked about. And that is the fact that um, law enforcement, for the most part in this country's history, has not had national reform at all. And so because it has not faced national reform that takes into account the race-based nature of criminal justice in this country, we are doing piecemeal what needs to be done in a national um, in, through national legislation. And so even if you have a progressive prosecutor here, you have um, Colorado, Connecticut, um, um, New Mexico, New York changing its this way that it is um, using um, qualified immunity when it comes to police officers. There's still the sense that the race-based nature of policing has not been addressed. Ronald Kessen, um, Gloria Brown Marshall's just called for national reform. This is not an entirely partisan issue. The Reform and Qualified Immunity Act, which is sponsored by Senator Mike Braun, a Republican of uh, Indiana, will eliminate qualified immunity for all public officials, but includes two safe harbor provisions, granting immunity 
if a defendant can show prior statutory or judicial authorization of the actions in question. Um, is there any chance uh, in this extraordinarily polarized environment that a national qualified immunity reform could pass on a bipartisan basis? Um, and if not, um, let's dig in on the state level. Tell us what's going on in Massachusetts. You you testified against the elimination of qualified immunity, but my uh, team tells me that Massachusetts has uh, decided that if a newly established uh, right deems that an officer is not fit for duty and poses a danger to the public, then the officer's certification is revoked and they're stripped of immunity in civil cases. Is that right? And do you think that's a good idea? How's that working in Massachusetts? Uh, nothing's working yet because they have to build up the infrastructure. But the, yes, the, the Police Reform Act was passed and one of the central tenets is that they basically created a statewide internal affairs. It's called the Post Commission. I forget what it stands for. But uh, each each officer in Massachusetts has to be certified. But you know, we have an extensive uh, training requirement for police officers in Massachusetts statutorily. Uh, so they go through academy, they go through refreshers. So that's really, that's not an issue, we don't think, in Massachusetts. But they'll be officially certified. All complaints against police officers will be sent to, to this commission, as opposed to being investigated internally. I mean, they can be also and will be investigated internally, but there'll be a statewide database. And if the commission decides that the officer did something wrong, uh, really bad, then she can be decertified. And if the commission decertifies the officer, that officer cannot be a police officer anymore. So it's basically an oversight on internal and local internal affairs is the way I see it. How it plays out, you know, I mean, this is... You pass legislation and you always should always think, how is this going to play out? Because we have collective bargaining issues where, you know, uh, officers are entitled to, a lot of public officials are entitled to arbitration of these things. They can't just be uh, kicked out. So how the interplay will work, but th that part, uh, I was not testifying against that part of it. You know, I don't see that as a, as, as a major issue as long as it works fairly. You know, Police officers, I always talk about this, you know, when, when I used to be in corrections, I was a counselor, but I also had duties of enforcement. And um, if there was trouble at, at the facility I worked in, I had to go. If there's trouble on your street, you call 911 and you lock the door and you don't have to deal with it. And these men and women we sent out there, and it, it's an especially dangerous environment now, with the proliferation of weapons. And, uh, the officer can be shot at any time by anybody. And we send them out there, and they do have to make these, these split-second decisions. And 99.99% .99 of them try, are trying to do the right thing. So, yes, there needs to be oversight, but you have to recognize what they have to deal with. And, 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 and Gloria, qualified immunity, racism is a major issue in this country. There's no question. It always has been. But qualified immunity it does not address that. So we shouldn't combine them and say that somehow if you eliminate qualified immunity, that, that will combat racism. It will not. But what you are doing, what has been happening, is we're losing a lot of good people in law enforcement because they feel they're under attack. And people, I mean, when people suggest that, you know, if you make them, you do something that might somebody later, a jury determines you shouldn't have done, you're going to lose your house. People are, going to stay, are not going to stay in this, in this profession. You know, because if they do something egregious, of course. If they do something criminal, of course. We have a very progressive district attorney here who's about to become a progressive U.S. attorney. 
And she has taken that on. And, you know, there aren't that many. The, the criminal actions you, you get, again, we've seen in our state, are for overtime abuse. But in terms of criminal actions for excessive force, it's very rare when the conduct rises to that. Certainly in Massachusetts. I can only speak to Massachusetts. This is where I practice. And I've handled, I would say, thousands of these cases. And, uh, you know, you don't see it. Thank you for that. And thank you for answering uh, Ed Grossman's question. Will uh, qualified immunity reform impact individuals' willingness to serve as police officers, including officers of color? Uh, Ravel, um, any chance of bipartisan national or state reform on this issue? This conversation suggests there there is bipartisan agreement and there are bills proposed by folks on both sides, but pretty pretty rough climate to pass bipartisan legislation. Any any chance of it? And what would that look like? Yeah, I, again, you know, with the qualification that I'm, I'm not very good at, at predicting political outcomes, I, I don't think it's very likely that you're going to see a bipartisan bill come out of Congress. Um, I think at this point with, you know, the, the midterms fast approaching, um, this is going to remain a live issue there. And one of the reasons for that is probably because there's a lot less pressure on them to act, in part because states have been so active on this front. We've seen so many states and, and cities around the country in, engage in all kinds of police reform. The New York Times reported a couple of months ago that uh, since the, the murder of George Floyd, um, 30 states uh, had, or 40 states had passed more than 130 um, different police reforms just in, in, in the year that followed that. And so uh, I think there's, there's going to continue to be quite a lot of movement at the state level, um, uh, not just on police reform generally, but on, on qualified immunity. Um, but I, I just want to, you know, point out that, it, you know, there seems to have been kind of a shifting of the goalposts here because, uh, again, what, what brought us to this debate were controversial police uses of force and qualified immunity was tied to that insofar as it was claimed that the existence of that doctrine instills in police officers uh, a sense of immunity that drives their misbehavior in the field. Um, now it's you know, the, the case has kind of shifted to, well, qualified immunity's existence here drives a public perception that police aren't being held accountable and that's important too. Um, even if the, the the empirical reality undermines that case, and I just you know again, I I, I want to be very clear. I don't think that there is a strong case to be made that qualified immunity is actually steering a significant amount of police litigation out of court. It's also not clear to me how the the scope of of, of police liability will change in the aggregate should qualified immunity be abolished. And I, I, I think, you know, advocates of abolition, you know, ought to bear the burden of, of making that empirical case out. Um, because if all that's driving this is perception, we also, also have to take into account the perception on the other side. And this is something that Leonard just got at. You know, police officers in this country, you know, for, for a while now, really kind of post-Ferguson have been reporting in larger numbers that they do not feel like they will get a fair shake should they make an honest mistake while out in the field. Um, and, and that has resulted in a, a lot of jurisdictions in the police pulling back from proactive enforcement activity that we know um, from, from empirical research results in, in, in fewer crimes. It's a really fantastic study uh, done by Roland Fryer and Tanaya Devi. Uh, at, at Harvard that looked at the impact of pattern and practice investigations launched in the wake of viral police incidents, um, which is to say viral uses of force. And what they found was that when those investigations are launched in the wake of those viral incidents, uh, police officers uh, engage with the public uh, significantly at significantly lower rates and that that you know, seems to uh, uh, correspond to 
really sharp increases in serious crime. Um, and so, you know, if, if we are, if perception is what's driving the push for reform, then we also have to take into account uh, perception on the part of, of the one institution uh, that is actually tasked with keeping us safe. Um, and, and that's going to matter quite a lot. This has been a wonderfully uh, illuminating and, and really rich debate. And it's time for closing thoughts. We always end on time at the uh, at America's Town Hall. So I'm just going to ask each of you in one or two sentences, if you had to identify a single reform, either of qualified immunity or of policing more generally, uh, that you are most, um, that you think is most urgent to see adopted, what would it be? And uh, Gloria Brown Marshall, I'll, I'll begin with you. What would your what would your single reform be? I would take the focus back to the criminal side and say prosecutorial discretion. The reason why Lenny could say, well, I just don't see that many cases is because prosecutors have the discretion as to whether or not they're going to bring a case against a police officer. And so we're, we're seeing cases in which people have lost their lives at the hands of police officers, and yet prosecutors have failed to prosecute, or they've prosecuted poorly. Even the case of Derek Chauvin, the only reason why I have contended that that case ended with a verdict is because they use outside people outside of Minneapolis, outside of Minnesota. And they did things that normally they would not have done in a policing case. Um, I think that prosecutors are not prosecuting the way they should. And if that results in the changes we're talking about results in a decrease in police officers joining the force. I, I talk to people many times who are going to join police um, policing academies. And I know they're good people and they want to help the communities. I don't know what the culture of policing does to them. But I know something is happening within the culture of police. This is something that is race-based, that's been in part of this country for well over 150 years. And our police departments began as slave catchers, as militia that put down Native American uprisings. They then mingled with the Bobbies and, and part of Boston and New York created the police departments we see formally. But we don't talk about this, the other part of, of policing, which was the, the racist roots in which police officers grew. And so so, or, or policing uh, grew. And so I think we need to address the race-based nature of policing. And that has to be something that's national. The last is perception um, by police officers. We say, well, you know, they're, they're going to feel that they're not being respected. There's a celebrity of policing that's going on right now in which we've, we've taken police officers to a higher level than any other government workers. And so we have to remember they are being paid by our tax dollars. They are government workers. And yes, some of them do very dangerous work, but the majority are people who are working to do government type of bureaucratic jobs. And when a, when an officer does something um, that, that is something that's an honest mistake, a person dies. And so as we hold um, um, medical personnel responsible, we hold others responsible. We need to hold police officers responsible without feeling guilty about holding them responsible for, for not just perception of, of, of protecting us, but also the sense that they're protecting us without um, this, this, this shield of immunity that, that means that they are not um, going to be subject to the same type of criminal prosecution or a civil, or a civil liability that others face. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Leonard Keston, with apologies for the fact that we, we just have uh, two minutes left. So just, just in, a, in a few sentences, if you had to identify a single reform of the police, uh, what would it be? I think I've addressed, I, I think I, I've said repeatedly what I, the reform of qualified immunity was a topic about. But in my minute, I do want to say that once you start calling every police officer in America a, race, a, a slave catcher, 
I didn't say that. That kind of rhetoric. I didn't that say they that. They arose out of slave catchers and they did this and they're and they're racist. They are human beings with families. I did not say who that. have the most dangerous job in this country. No, it's not the and most dangerous to, job. And we and we need to and that. we need to recognize that and appreciate that and not lump these good men and women in with, you know, torturers or slave catchers. And you know, it's it's that kind of rhetoric that demoralizes them. And I've invited people. You you think they're just that it's it's a job that they're mostly sitting around doing nothing? Then they're not the ones that you're worried about. So I invite everybody go work go work a, a three to eleven shift in some of these t- tough areas. Go do that. And you know it doesn't matter where you are. Keep in mind you could you could have a routine traffic stop of a guy of a guy who looks like me in a suit, and you approach the window and they shoot you. It happens all the time. And they live with this, and we should all know this. Thank you so much for that, Raphael. The last word is to you in one or two sentences. Your single reform of the police uh, to leave our NCC audience with. If there was one thing, it would be to hire more of them and, and, and hire quality officers. I think that's what our country needs most right now. Crime is moving in the wrong direction. That crime is affecting the most vulnerable communities in America. In New York City, about 5% of street segments see about uh, half of all violent crime. Um, you know, it, it's not people that look like uh, us and, and, and live like us. It's, it's people who have quite enough on their plate and they need to be protected and police are the best position to do that. Right now, that that institution has shrunk in size. It needs to be um, fortified. And, and so it may not be popular, but but that would be the one lever I would pull right now. Thank you so much, Gloria Brown Marshall, Leonard Kesson, and Rafael Manguel for a wide-ranging, deep, and really illuminating debate about this crucially important topic about reform and qualified immunity. So grateful to our great partners at WHYY and their Your Democracy initiative, and also to Fred and Barbara Sutherland and the Sutherland Family Fund that have supported this initiative. Uh, the, the Sutherland uh, family is great friends of both the National Constitution Center and of WHYY, and we're so grateful to you, Fred and Barbara, for having brought us together for this wonderful discussion. Thanks to all of you, friends, for taking an hour out of your day to learn about the Constitution and to grow in wisdom and uh, looking forward to a great season of learning and growing together. Thanks again to our panelists and look forward to seeing everyone again soon. Thanks. Bye. This episode was produced by John Guerra, Tanea Tauber, Lana Ulrich, and me, Jackie McDermott. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team. Check out more of our programming on policing and the Constitution. In the spring, we held a constitutional class on the Fourth Amendment and policing in America. We've also hosted town halls and podcasts on policing, police reform, and constitutional rights. We'll link to those programs in our show notes. We also have many other interesting programs coming up this fall. Check out the full lineup and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org debate. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. And join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.